Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. The Supreme Court takes on affirmative action. Lula defeats Bolsonaro to become president of Brazil. South Korea promises investigation of Halloween stampede that killed 154. An India bridge collapse kills over 130. Somalia car bombings kill over 100. Russian missiles again target Ukraine's energy infrastructure. The U.S. will reportedly deploy nuclear-capable bombers to Australia. South Korea and the U.S. launch war games. U.S. midterm concerns remain despite no specific threat. Kemp and Abrams debate for a Georgia Senate seat. And a planet-killer asteroid is found hiding in the sun's glare. Our top story, the Supreme Court hears a challenge to race-conscious college admissions. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by ABC News, Fox 9 Minnesota, The Associated Press, Independent, and Cincinnati Public Radio. The U.S. Supreme Court is poised to review and potentially overturn the legality of the use of affirmative action in higher education. Harvard and the University of North Carolina are set to defend their approach to promoting diversity on Monday. Challenges to the practice have been brought by conservative activist and founder of the campaign group Students for Fair Admissions, Edward Blum. His group, which was also behind a case brought against the University of Texas and a successful 2013 challenge to a key provision in the Voting Rights Act, asserts that factoring race into college admissions goes against the Constitution. The court has upheld the use of affirmative action in college admissions twice in the past 19 years, including a 2016 ruling. The makeup of the court has changed significantly since it last ruled on affirmative action. Former President Donald Trump's three appointees have pushed the Supreme Court into a conservative majority, while President Biden's single nomination has given the court its first black female justice. Justice Jackson recused herself from the Harvard hearing due to her connections with Harvard at the time of some of the litigation involved in the case. The ruling will rest on whether the Supreme Court determines that the 14th Amendment protects the consideration of race in higher education. A final ruling isn't likely to be reached until late spring 2023. Scott, thank you for the facts. During this podcast, we separate the spins from the facts. And for this first one, it's a Democratic narrative coming from The Atlantic. The discrimination resulting from centuries of oppression against Black Americans hasn't yet been undone. And affirmative action remains a crucial tool for promoting diversity at academic institutions, ensuring all races receive equal opportunities in higher education. Fox News gives us the Republican narrative. To stop discrimination based on race, we must literally stop discriminating based on race. The 14th Amendment prohibits this, making affirmative action unconstitutional. Institutions of higher education must understand that equal protection means equal, not something to be politicized with woke factors. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative for this story. It says that there is a 35% chance that over half of U.S. states will forbid affirmative action before the year 2035. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, news coming from Brazil as Lula defeats Bolsonaro. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, FOLHA, NPR Online News, CNBC, Bloomberg, and Financial Times. On Sunday, leftist politician Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva was elected to become the next president of Brazil. He garnered around 51% of the vote to defeat right-wing incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, who had been seeking a second term in the runoff vote. Lula will become the oldest president in Brazilian history when he takes office in January 2023. The new year will also see Lula begin his third term in the position he occupied between 2003 and 2010. Bolsonaro, who last week became the first sitting president in Brazil to lose a re-election bid, is yet to comment on the results. Two of his close allies, Finance Minister Paulo Guedes and the president of the lower house, Arthur Lira, seem to acknowledge the defeat. World leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden, had already congratulated Lula on his victory as of Sunday. The result marks a political comeback for the former president, who was imprisoned in 2018 on charges of corruption and money laundering. His conviction was annulled by Brazil's top court in 2021, clearing him to run for president again. Lula's victory comes as voters in Latin America have been punishing right-wing incumbents in charge during the COVID pandemic. Leftist candidates have also been elected in Chile, Colombia, and Peru over the last 18 months. The new president is expected to govern moderately and make concessions in order to build a broader coalition, as Congress is reportedly right-leaning and Lula's left-wing allies and Lula's left-wing allies represent less than a quarter of the seats in the lower house. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin on this story coming from The Guardian. This result represents not only a remarkable comeback for former President Lula, who was sidelined from the 2018 election, but also a comeback for the entire country after the disastrous and polarizing far-right presidency of Bolsonaro. Democracy is won and Brazil is unified in the fight against deforestation, hunger, and racism. And a right narrative is coming from Fox News. Judicial activism harmed Bolsonaro's campaign by upholding partisan accusations that Brazilian democracy was under threat and censoring media and the candidate's supporters. Despite significant evidence of his involvement with money laundering and corruption, Brazilian courts played a decisive role in enabling Lula to run, as well as helping him to victory. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. We've got one on this story, and it says that there's a 5% chance that Jair Bolsonaro will successfully stage a coup by January 2nd, 2023. We talk a lot about uh, the deforestation they mention and, and how important the uh, Amazon rainforest is and how Brazil can't possibly cut down the, all their trees, but... We already cut down all ours. That's why they can't cut down theirs, right? Right. And I love their coffee. Oh. <laughs> is, uh, what's the guy's name? Juan Valdez? He's, he's yeah, Colombian, he's from, right? He's Colombian, yes. Okay, yes, yes. yeah. Who's the Brazilian? Who's, well, I don't who's know, his, but I, I think Juan Portuguese moved. Portuguese equivalent. You know, single origin Brazilian coffee is amazing. Is, are, you, are you serious? Is that like your, your no, go-to? No, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I I like Hawaiian. If I had to choose one, I like Hawaiian coffee. That Kona coffee, that that that's pretty good. 
Isn't that the coffee that uh, cats eat and they? Sh- that's that's civic coffee. That's oh, that's right, civic coffee. I don't yeah. know what country that comes from. I Not any either. place that I want to go. Where? Yeah. <laughs> if you're, that, that's a good bellwether for me. And like, do I want to go to your country? No, no, no I'm good. Nope. My, my main concern is who thought of trying it first. Right. Exactly. I mean, appa- apparently, it tastes good or interesting or something, and I could see people maybe wanting to try out of curiosity now, but that first guy, look out for him. I mean, I what don't know. Was, exactly. Is he I still roaming the earth? Him. I hope yeah. not. I'll stand that was one of the best conversations we've ever had, by the way. That <laughs> <was. conversation. laughs> I wonder if I'll be able to use any of it. I'm not I don't sure. Know. <laughs> South Korea promises an investigation into the deadly stampede. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Al Jazeera, Evening Standard, KOB4, NBC Albuquerque, and the Globe and Mail. South Korean police on Monday said they've launched an investigation into the fatal crowd surge during Halloween festivities in the nightlife district of Itaewon. The stampede reportedly killed 154 people and injured 149 on Saturday. The police task force's investigation includes reviewing video footage from closed-circuit cameras and social media posts, as well as interviewing witnesses to understand how the surge began and progressed. The Itaewon area is famous for its cosmopolitan ambiance and is the country's most popular spot for Halloween celebrations. Saturday's gathering is estimated to have been around 100,000 people, its largest since the pandemic. The government also began an official mourning period for the victims on Sunday. At least 22 were foreign nationals from at least 12 nations, and other victims were too young to carry identification. One national police official said that while it was foreseen that a large number of people would gather there, they didn't expect that large-scale casualties would occur. There were 137 officers deployed in Itaewon on Saturday, compared with 37 to 90 officers in the three years before COVID. Saturday's fatal event was South Korea's worst since the Sewol Ferry sank in 2014 and killed 304 people, prompting serious questions surrounding safety measures. Scott, thank you for the facts, as we have two spins that have emerged from this story, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Eleven Alive. The South Korean government says it couldn't have predicted a deadly surge from overcrowding, but it had the manpower and experience to do more. Beyond deploying more police, the police could have also restricted cars from large pedestrian areas, enforced one-way walking lanes, blocked entries into narrow pathways, and closed Itaewon's subway station to prevent overcrowding. The investigation must focus on faulty preparedness measures. And the Hindu gives us a pro-establishment narrative. The South Korean government is responsibly leading an investigation into this tragedy with full transparency. As details continue to emerge on the complex crowd dynamics, more context will come available. Seoul mobilized a massive and complex response to the stampede after it occurred, including 1,700 firefighters, police, and public officials. And tragedy continues in India with a bridge collapse, with a death toll rising to over 130. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Guardian, Hindustan Times, and Times of India. The death toll from a collapse of a pedestrian bridge in western India has risen to at least 132 people, local officials said as rescue teams continue to search for the missing on Monday. 
More than 400 people were reportedly on the suspension bridge over the Machu River in the city of Morbi in the state of Gujarat when it collapsed on Sunday. People had come onto the bridge to celebrate a post-Diwali religious practice in which idols are submerged in the river. The bridge, known locally as Jultapool or Swinging Bridge, was inaugurated in 1879 during British rule. Prior to its collapse, it was closed for six months while repair work was undertaken and it reopened on October 26th. Local officials added that at least 177 people have so far been pulled out of the river by rescue teams. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, a native of Gujarat, announced a compensation of 200,000 rupees, roughly $2,400, to the families of the victims. An official investigation was also launched. On Monday, it was further announced that nine people, including officials from Oreva Group, the company in charge of repairs, were arrested in connection with the collapse of the bridge. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a narrative A from Hindustan Times. Questions must be asked of the Oreva Group, who are maintaining the bridge. Why did a company specializing in clocks, bulbs, and electrical appliances receive the contract to repair the 140-year-old structure? There are also reports the bridge reopened without authorization from local officials. These pressing questions must be answered. And Narrative B comes from Times of India. This is a tragedy with multiple possible causes. There are reports that groups of teenagers were shaking the bridge before its collapse. Noises were also heard several times before the structure gave way. There may be multiple stakeholders who need to answer tough questions. Where were the police and the local authorities? I lived in uh, San Francisco for for many years, and I I worked for the Oakland A's baseball team. So I would take the Bay Bridge to work every day. Someone told me, oh, yeah, the Bay Bridge, that's uh, totally not up to code anymore. And and it's a double-decker bridge. When you're driving towards San Francisco, you're on the top. When you're driving towards Oakland, you're on the bottom. And they said, if there's any kind of earthquake of any kind of note, the top is just going to fall on the bottom. So, and like, and they're like, well, when, when are we due for one of those earthquakes? Like, oh yeah, we've been due for one for like a hundred years. Like, okay. Uh, Okay. That's. And then the question is like, what are we going to do? Like, well, we can't close the bridge. It would stop the whole state. So, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I I don't, don't take these bridges staying up for for granted. I'll, I'll tell you that much. No, you're right about that. Tragedy strikes Somalia as over 100 are killed in Mogadishu car bombings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, NPR Online News, and The New York Times. At least 100 people were killed and more than 300 injured in two car bomb attacks in the Somali capital Mogadishu on Saturday, according to Somalia's President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud. The Al-Qaeda-affiliated Islamist group Al-Shabaab has reportedly claimed responsibility for the twin bombings. The first blast targeted the Somali Ministry of Education, while the second explosion occurred minutes later as first responders arrived at the scene next to a busy junction. The latest bombings are the deadliest terrorist attacks in the country since a truck bombing at the same site killed more than 500 people in October 2017. In August, a 30-hour Al-Shabaab hotel siege in Mogadishu left at least 20 people dead and dozens wounded. In August, President Mahmoud announced a total war on the insurgent group. The latest attacks came as government forces recently launched a major countrywide offensive against Al-Shabaab strongholds, with Mogadishu also aiming to wrap up the group's financial network and recruit clan-based militias. 
While the extremist group reacted by killing major Klan leaders to discourage a government-backed uprising, Mahmoud and other government officials recently met to discuss expanded measures to counter violent extremism in the country. Meanwhile, the Somali administration requested that Washington loosen restrictions on U.S. drone strikes in Somalia, which amount to 11 so far this year. The Biden administration recently approved the redeployment of 450 American troops to Somalia. And two different spins have emerged from this story. We begin with Narrative A coming from The New Arab. The recent terrorist attacks underscore that the new Somali government may fail in defeating the al-Shabaab, despite their efforts and U.S. military support. A successful fight against al-Shabaab requires a holistic approach. So far, however, the government has failed to implement a comprehensive strategy that includes not only military measures, but also the creation of economic prospects, the fight against corruption, and the creation of a viable legal system. Narrative B comes from the East African Times. Despite the recent bombings, al-Shabaab's days are numbered, as the Somali people are more united than ever in their aim to defeat terrorists. The government is well aware that this fight requires an integrated strategy that includes not only military action, but also focuses on targeting terrorist financing, as well as humanitarian aid and economic needs. Victory on the ground will make sustainable development possible. Eric, I know on this show we try to see all sides. I'm sure there's some sort of political argument that al-Shabaab is is fighting for, but having a second attack that comes as the first responders are helping people from the first blast, that's about the lowest lowest thing I can imagine. Yeah, Yeah, let's pour some more salt in those wounds. Awful. As we turn our attention to day 250 of the Ukraine conflict, as Russian missiles again target energy infrastructure in Kyiv and other major cities. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Ukraine Forum, NPR Online News, and TASS. A wave of Russian missiles again targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure on Monday, striking the regions of Kyiv, Zaporizhia, and Kharkiv, as well as the areas of Mykolaiv, Lviv, Zidomir, Kirovorod, and Chernivsky. Herman Halyushenko, Ukraine's energy minister, described the development as another barbaric attack, adding that electric substations... Hydropower and heat generation facilities were hit by rockets. Early reports suggest that at least one civilian was killed. Ukrainian officials said the country's missile defense systems shot down 44 of more than 50 cruise missiles used in the attacks, but the figures couldn't be independently confirmed. An overnight Russian attack was also reported in the region of Dnipropetrovsk with local officials stating that Nikopol and Marinets were struck with rockets, heavy artillery, and drones. One civilian was reported killed and a further civilian was injured. While heavy fighting continued in the Donetsk region, primarily near the city of Bakhmut, Ukrainian officials reported that four civilians had been killed and two more injured in the past day. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was killed as a result of Ukrainian attacks in the same time period. Elsewhere, after Russia withdrew from the Black Sea Grain Initiative over the weekend, citing attacks on its Black Sea fleet in Crimea, Ukrainian officials said that 12 ships carrying grain had nonetheless left the country's ports on Monday. However, hundreds more ships remained blockaded. The UN's Antonio Guterres is trying to revive the deal and has delayed a trip to the Arab League in Algiers to divert attention towards the issue. Russia called for a U.N. Security Council meeting on Monday to discuss the subject. Thanks, Eric. We have some narrative spins on this long-running story as well. 
NPR Online News starts us off with a pro-establishment narrative. In withdrawing from the grain deal, Russia is again weaponizing food and exacerbating an already fragile food insecurity situation across the world. Moscow must urgently return to the negotiating table in order to avoid a humanitarian crisis. And TASS gives us a pro-Russian narrative. Russia's withdrawal from the grain deal comes after the agreement's terms were blatantly violated when an attack was made on Russian ships used to safeguard the humanitarian corridor. Given this terrorist act was likely carried out with the assistance of British specialists, it's unsurprising that Moscow is unwilling to trust Western negotiators. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This one says that there is a 3% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russian-Ukraine conflict before 2023. A report has emerged saying the U.S. Air Force will deploy nuclear-capable B-52s to Australia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Daily Mail, Financial Times, and Radio New Zealand. On Monday, the Australian Broadcast Corporation's Four Corners program reported that the U.S. is planning to deploy up to six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to the Royal Australian Air Force's Tyndall base. This comes as the region has become a crucial defense hub for the U.S., which is reportedly committed to spending $1 billion to upgrade its military assets there as tensions with China mount. The expansion of the Tyndall Air Base, which includes a parking area to accommodate up to six B-52 bombers, is expected to finish in late 2026 and cost up to $1 million. Australian officials stated that the project was currently in the design phase and downplayed the importance of the U.S. deploying bombers by claiming that these aircraft have been visiting Australia since the 1980s and conducting training there since 2005. The B-52 bombers were built to carry nuclear weapons for deterrence missions during the Cold War, having a combat range of about 14,000 kilometers without aerial fueling. The U.S. Air Force has an estimated 76 B-52 bombers in service. Over the past decade, Australia has deepened its military ties with the U.S. Last year, both countries struck the trilateral deal AUKUS, with the U.K. to provide nuclear-propelled submarines for Australia and boost its military research and development. Scott, thank you for the facts. And this story has spawned three different spins, beginning with an anti-China narrative, and it's coming from the Sydney Morning Herald. As China threatens to invade Taiwan, the deepening of U.S.-Australia military ties is sensible to dissuade Beijing from such a reckless move. The best way to avoid a war isn't to indicate that Australia would be out of a possible conflict zone, but to present a united front against People's Republic of China aggression. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. Australia must understand that Beijing will not make the slightest concession concerning its core interests, especially involving Taiwan. Friendly relations with China would be more in line with the actual interests of Australia. Canberra will only hurt itself by becoming a U.S. geopolitical pawn. And finally, a nerd narrative saying that there's an 8% chance that there will be an armed conflict in the South China Sea before 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, South Korea and the U.S. begin the largest air drills in years. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Reuters, YNA, Korea Jun Gang Daily, Japan, and Korea Times. 
The U.S. and South Korea on Monday began a massive five-day combined air exercise in which hundreds of warplanes will take part in attack preparation scenarios for 24 hours a day. The operation, called Vigilant Storm, comes as allies state that such training is needed to counter threats from North Korea. It also follows the conclusion of the South's 12-day-long Hoguk annual field exercises on Friday. The Allies plan to perform more than 1,600 sorties during the drills, with the Korean Air and Space Operations Center conducting the forces to enhance operational capabilities. Seoul has deployed about 140 warplanes and Washington has deployed around 100 warplanes, while the Australian Air Force has dispatched a tanker transport. The news marks the return of the U.S.-South Korea Joint Air Training Program, which was held annually between 2015 and 2017. The occasion was suspended during the Moon Jae-in administration along with other drills to avoid angering Pyongyang. North Korea reportedly condemned the actions of Seoul and Washington on Saturday, claiming that their military exercise would escalate tensions on the Korean peninsula. Meanwhile, South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff, JCS Chairman General Kim Soon-kyum, instructed officials on Monday to, quote, maintain a thorough readiness posture against provocations and to maintain an operational posture in case of an enemy provocation. Thanks for those ominous facts, Eric. We have some equally ominous narrative spins, starting with the establishment critical view from anti-war. When Washington was truly committed to de-escalating tensions with North Korea, Pyongyang responded positively, halting missile tests and demolishing several testing sites. This changed when the U.S. began to increase its military presence in the Asia-Pacific, thereby posing an existential threat to the DPRK. Carrying out provocative drills will only escalate tensions. And the pro-establishment narrative coming from DW. Seoul and Washington have demonstrated goodwill toward Pyongyang in the hopes of creating an environment conducive towards disarmament talks for four years. However, as North Korea has failed to make good on its promises, resuming its missile tests and further deploying its nuclear program, this course correction is necessary for the restoration of the readiness of the South and its allies for an attack from the North. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says that there's a 17% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by the year 2045. No specific threat, but concerns remain as it relates to the U.S. midterm elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, Axios, and Fox News. Jen Easterly, the director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, told CBS on Sunday that there are no specific or credible threats to disrupt election infrastructure in November's midterms, but there are concerns regarding threats of harassment, intimidation, and violence against election officials, polling places, and voters. She said that the CISA is also concerned with cyber threats, insider and physical threats, and disinformation. She said that the election officials have been alerted to protect voting systems and be aware of political violence amid a very complex threat environment. However, she affirmed, I have confidence in the elections that are going to be run because of the massive amount of work that's been done across the federal government at state and local election officials with election vendors to put multiple, multiple layers of resilience and security controls in place. Though there have been concerns of election interference stemming from Russia and China, Easterly expressed confidence that such threats are being addressed. 
Easterly's comments follow the DHS and other law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, issuing an intelligence bulletin on Friday warning that political candidates, election officials, and the public face a heightened risk of violence. Her statement also comes as Paul Pelosi, the husband of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, was attacked by an intruder during a break-in at the couple's home in San Francisco on Friday. Thank you, Scott. And as expected, we're going to hear from both sides with the left and the right narratives. We're going to begin with a left one coming from CNN. Trump's false election fraud claims regarding the 2020 election have directly caused a new era of radicalization in which millions of Americans wrongly believe that their country is swarmed with election fraud. Trump's disregard for American democracy has created fertile ground for foreign adversaries to plant misinformation and sow division among the public. The CISA must do more to tackle disinformation. And we have a right narrative spin from Breitbart. Though the left loves to pontificate about misinformation, it's only creating echo chambers by purging social media sites of conservative voices. For instance, earlier this month, Facebook shut down over 800 accounts and pages accused of spreading so-called misinformation, including many legitimate conservative pages, some with millions of followers. Conservatives are being silenced simply for holding views that go against the mainstream left. Has Facebook, um, have they reactivated your account since they shut you down because of all that misinformation you were spreading? No, nah, we're fighting it in the courts. You yeah. know, it's it's okay. a long process, you know, appeals and all that. So we'll it, see. But I, it, you know what? I, I really appreciate you asking. As we continue with more U.S. midterm news as Kemp and Abrams spar in a final debate. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Axios, Politico, Independent, and ABC. On Sunday, Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic nominee Stacey Abrams conducted their second and final gubernatorial debate. Georgia has seen record-setting early voting ahead of Election Day on November 8th. Abrams, who is running against Kemp for the second time, challenged the incumbent governor's anti-abortion and pro-gun policy stance and blamed him for high inflation and crime. Abrams stated that communities were in turmoil and that she wanted to do better by Georgians. Kemp accused Abrams of attacking his policies because she doesn't want to talk about her own record. Kemp also suggested that Abrams was part of the defund the police movement, an accusation that was denied by the Democratic candidate. Kemp stated that it wasn't his desire to move the needle any further on abortion restrictions, but acknowledged a Republican legislature may make their own decision. Kemp also took credit for wage growth and low unemployment, claims that Abrams rebuked as not good enough for the state. Abrams is currently lagging in the polls, having lost to Kemp by 1.4% in 2018. More than 1.6 million Georgians have already cast their ballots. Abrams has reaffirmed that she would respect and not question the outcome of the election, having taken over a week in 2018 to concede the election result to Kemp. Diametrically opposed political narratives on this story, the Democratic narrative spin comes from the Atlanta Voice. As governor, Abrams would take care of all Georgians, creating more opportunities and economic security for all. These midterms are a historic opportunity to elect the U.S.'s first black female governor, replacing Kemp with a powerful and effective leader who would ensure access to education, health care, and a better quality of life. And we counter that with the Republican narrative coming from Red State. Abrams' bid for governor is in free fall. 
As hammered home by Kemp's campaign, she seems more comfortable in the national spotlight clinking glasses with liberal elites than working for the average Georgian citizen. Unless anything drastic changes, Kemp is in a good position to resoundingly defeat Abrams again. And there's another nerd narrative. This one says that there's a 10% chance that Abrams will become governor of Georgia in 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our final story, a planet killer asteroid is reportedly hiding in the sun's glare. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The New York Times, Space.com, and Forbes. Astronomers have found three near-Earth asteroids dubbed planet killers due to their massive size during a brief window of twilight. The asteroids were in an orbit between Earth and Venus and are usually hidden within the sun's glare. One of them, known as 2022 AP7, is around one mile long and gets as close as 4.4 million miles to Earth within its orbital path, uncomfortably close by cosmic standards. It could potentially be the largest asteroid found in eight years. Searching for objects in this region of space often involves looking straight into the sun, which can damage even the most advanced telescope's sensitive components. This makes such observations rare for astronomers. According to the leader of the search, astronomer Scott Shepard of the Carnegie Institution's Earth and Planets Laboratory for Science, beyond the brief 10-minute window of opportunity, astronomers also have to look close to the horizon, which can blur and distort crucial data. Queen's University's Belfast astronomer Alan Fitzsimmons said it's also possible that, way down the line in the next few thousand years, it could turn into a problem for our descendants, causing planet-wide destruction. The asteroids were found at Noir Lab's Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile, using the U.S. Department of Energy's Dark Energy Camera. Scott, three spins have emerged from this story. We begin with Narrative A, coming from Fox Weather. If an asteroid were to become an actual threat to life on Earth, it's important to detect them years in advance. More study, observation, and technological advancements for deflection are needed. This can't be a last-minute endeavor. Narrative B comes from CNET. This is yet another headline where publications take the technical terms used by scientists and blow them out of proportion for clicks. In reality, anything as far out as 85% of the way to Mars could be considered near Earth. There are no cosmic worries in this story. And a nerd narrative says there's a 3% chance that space debris will kill a human on Earth by 2025, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.